You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hmm? Holly, how are you doing this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. What, uh, what's been happening with you? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I know, I, I, know. We, I <laughs> say as though we didn't just talk about it, but I know uh, for the last like 15 minutes it. or yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so I just got back home to Waco, uh, last night from, uh, San Antonio. I was out there with uh, a cohort of, uh, of leaders um, to learn a little bit more uh, from Brene Brown uh, about her Dare to Lead approach and her just her curriculum around Dare to Lead to become a Dare to Lead facilitator. So uh, yeah, so I was out there in San Antonio with Brene Brown and a whole bunch of amazing leaders and and thinkers and yeah, it was a it was a good few days um, being nice. out there. Yeah, yeah. So are you, uh, is this, so I know obviously you're someone that loves learning and things like that. Yes. These type of things, do they tend to be where you come home and you're like exhausted or you come home and you're like energized because you just learned a whole bunch of cool things and you like, it's got your, your gears going, you know? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So I, so in these types of things, I usually come home and withdraw and just find some way in space to just kind of be still and quiet because there's just so much information. And especially after these last few days, there was there, I mean, there, there just was so much that was covered and some of it was familiar. Actually, I mean, most of it was familiar because we've, you know, I've, I had read the book Dare to Lead. I, you know, was, had been following her work for so long, you know, was a, a student of hers back at the University of Houston, um, back like in 2009 and her 10 and, um, and so like I'm familiar with this stuff, but it's amazing how just it seems like each time we dig into this type of work in general, there's a new layer that gets pulled back that you're like, oh man, I just hadn't thought of it in that way before. Um, and I really had on my hat as uh, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development at the Garland School of Social Work and was, you know, I was trying to think about this just within my little sphere of influence and leadership at the Garland School of Social Work. And so, um, so yeah, I definitely. I guess to go back and answer your question, I I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired, yeah. but I'm but I'm you know I I just I feel like there's just a whole bunch of stuff that gets stirred up in these types of trainings where I kind of just need to sit and you know in the same way like if you shake up a a jar that has a bunch of like sand and water in it, it needs you know it needs a moment to just let all the sand settle. Like that's mm. kind of what I feel like right now. I just need to yeah. be still enough to let everything settle and figure out what I need to dis or to discern what I need to to pick up and do something with and what I need to just kind of let sit for a little bit and just kind of simmer a little bit longer and yeah so anyway I don't know what about you because I know you do trainings often too and you know symposium and things like that <laughs> yeah yeah I do I do a lot of symposia um 
Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I think uh, it's usually like pretty exciting and you think about, oh, this is a lot of cool information, assuming yeah. that it's, you know, a good training that you're enjoying. Right, yeah. Um, but particularly if it's like kind of all slammed into one weekend or something like that, then with that comes kind of the mental like, well, my brain's done now. I'm going to yeah. have to, you know, just hang out for a bit. So especially things that can go outwards and inwards, right? That's I mean, exactly right, yes. Like mental health field or, or I would imagine a faith field, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you're learning can be applied like outwards, but then also probably, as you mentioned, like stirs up some stuff inwards as well. Oh, and so yeah. Trying to find that balance of like, which, what am I doing with all this? You know? Yes, that's exactly right. So I actually had, so one of the things that Brene does often, I mean, I remember her doing this back at UH, um, but she talks a lot about permission slips. And so at the very beginning of the training, she actually asked us to write down whatever our permission slips were that we needed for ourselves during that time. And one of the things that I had written down was um, permission to give or basically to receive the content for me and my own leadership needs before I start focusing on leading others and and teaching others to lead others. And, you know, this is a, a training that I went through so that I could go back to Baylor and share this information with others on campus at Baylor. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this type of, you know, facilitation outside of Baylor, but but I really had to pause and be like, no, I need to learn how to practice this stuff for me to be a better leader for those who work directly with me before I start thinking about how I can teach others these things. Like I got to get these these skills and concepts down first and and so, yeah, there was a lot of that balancing back and forth, but I had to ultimately go back and be like, no, I need to learn this stuff first before I start thinking about how I could serve others with these skills quite yet, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's really good to be back with Corey and the kids. And this is conference season for many of us in social work education. And so um, so I also know there's a lot of conferences that I've got lined up on the horizon. So it was hard being away for even a few days, just knowing that there's going to be a lot of other, you know, travel things up ahead. So yeah. anyways, but I'm sure we'll talk about those things later. But speaking of yeah. travel, I know Brooke is, she's out of town right now, right? Yeah, she is. We're recording this on the weekend right before this comes out on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is, she is out of town this weekend. So it's just Gray and I and Knox holding down the fort, I guess. Yeah. That's a phrase, right? Yeah. Just hanging out here for the weekend which is good. It's fun and also, as you would imagine, tiring. Yeah. All in all, I think her trip is less than 48 hours. Oh, so yeah. So not, not a huge long thing, but yeah. Yeah. Well, should we shall we shift and talk a little bit about this upcoming episode? Yeah. In fact, I think so it actually kind of works perfectly, right? Because mm-hmm. this is an episode where I wasn't able to be there. Actually, Gray had, we were all set to record and I was sick and so I had to go get him and ended up not being able to be there. But as we record this, I am eight minutes through editing. So why don't you (laughs) tell me what's in this episode aside from maybe the first eight minutes? Yeah, that's awesome. So um, this week we have Jeremy Everett uh, on uh, on CXMH, who is the founder and the executive director of the Texas Hunger Initiative. Um, You're going to hear all about that in this upcoming episode. But the thing we really focus on is this new book that he wrote that's called I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. You know, we hear from Jeremy all about, 
you know, kind of what inspired him to write this book about these different terminologies that he uses in the book, like, you know, hunger versus food insecure versus very, uh, very low food security and the prevalence across the U.S. And I mean, he and he does such a great job, too, of unpacking like how hunger and food security impacts so many areas of our lives. So obviously, including our mental health. But I, I just I really appreciated how thoughtful he was in articulating, you know, just how meaningful this area is in in the work that he does and being able to unpack, you know, just his whole journey into this line of work. Because of of course, for, you know, once you start hearing from Jeremy about how 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 much this works mean this work means to him, um, you'll very quickly pick up that there is a story behind this. And I think his story is powerful. So so you probably haven't heard it quite yet if you're only eight minutes into <laughs> into nope, editing yep. it. But I'm excited for you and our listeners to get to hear about this. And then he talks about Texas Hunger Initiative in general and um, and just what it does and how it's serving not only Texas, but the broader country. So um, there's a lot of good work that THI is doing that I'm just, I'm just really excited for our listeners to get to hear about. So, and not, and, yeah. and to be thinking about, you know, how this applies for their communities too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear it. Obviously I'll, I'll hear it before the right, audience yes. I'm going to finish editing. Yeah. I, I was just really grateful for his time to be able to come on and talk with us. All right. All right. <laughs> well, but, uh, well, yeah, we'll get into it. Here is uh, the conversation. Uh, hope you enjoy. Enjoy, y'all. Hey, welcome back to the show. Um, today we have Jeremy K. Everett, who is the founder and executive director of the Texas Hunger Initiative and an organization that partners with the United States Department of Agriculture, Texas state agencies, the corporate sector, and thousands of faith and community-based organizations to develop and implement strategies to alleviate hunger through policy, education, research, and community organizing. He's a noted advocate for the hungry. He served on the National Commission on Hunger, has spent over two decades ministering to the poor, and frequently speaks on poverty, hunger, community development, and social entrepreneurship. Uh, Jeremy regularly writes for HuffPost and has been featured on PBS documentaries in newspapers such as the Dallas Morning News and on talk shows, and he is the author of the new book, I Was Hungry, Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Jeremy, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Holly. Oh, absolutely. I'm so, so glad to have you on our show. Before we dive in, is there anything that I missed in your fancy bio there? Uh, no, I think that covers more than enough. Um, uh, but really thrilled to be on your show. Thrilled that, uh, uh, you know, so many folks don't see hunger and poverty as uh, as mental health issues. And so I'm grateful mm. for your uh, wherewithal uh, to be able to to connect these dots. So excited to be on your show and, and look forward to hearing the questions that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm super, super honored and excited for you to be joining us. And so before we dive in, I kind of wanted to see if I could, you know, hear a little bit from you about the backstory of what really inspired you to write this book in the first place. We'll, we'll go into the details about the book, but I always love starting with hearing kind of what what inspired you to write this book in the first place? 
That's a great question. You know, it, it probably started uh, 20 years ago, uh, or a little, maybe a little over 20 years ago now, uh, when I felt uh, the, the calling to the issue of poverty. Um, I was a, a junior in college, or just after my junior year in college, and I, I remember uh, for uh, since the since the day I stepped foot uh, on the university campus uh, where I attended, Sanford University in Birmingham. Uh, really, uh, really entering school with a, a sense of guilt about uh, equity and uh, inequity and, and a guilt about uh, growing up in households that, where I had plenty to eat and I uh, never had to worry about a place to sleep. And so many people uh, didn't have that. And I remember asking pastors and, and religious leaders and professors about that for three years uh, about that particular issue, trying to to find some uh, some answer um, that would speak to that burning question. And it wasn't until the summer after my junior year, I was living in Birmingham and I was a, a youth minister at a small uh, country church that I came across the story of St. Francis of Assisi. And, and at that moment, I knew uh, I knew what I was called to do. So I knew I needed to get, get all my possessions and gather them up and and I loaded them in my little old car and drove over the, over the mountain uh, to downtown Birmingham to a little park, uh, Kelly Ingram Park, that actually uh, was the park where a lot of the civil rights activity happened. And mm. and that's where the homeless hung out. And, and I gave away my stuff and knew at that moment I was called to the issue of poverty. Now, having said that, I had no idea what I was getting into. I don't yeah. even think I knew <laughs> what nonprofit work was and yeah. uh, s- certainly didn't know what social work was. And and uh, and so it was, uh, it's been a long journey. But, but that was probably mm. where a lot of this impetus uh, was born. That's so, so great. Yeah, I loved reading about that story in this book where you had talked about the um, watching that movie about St. Francis of Assisi. And, and I kind of, I might ask you about that a little bit more later, but I do want to make sure that our listeners too just kind of have a, a general understanding of what it is exactly that we're talking about here. So do you mind unpacking a little bit and helping us to better understand some of these terms? Like like when we when we talk about hunger or food insecure or very low food security, like what do these terms mean? Um, and how prevalent is this in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, food insecurity uh, is the technical term uh, that we use when we're defining hunger. Uh, essentially, food insecurity means uh, people that don't have enough food to live an active, healthy lifestyle and and are unable to buy food uh, using socially appropriate means, uh, meaning that they can't uh, provide provide for their families, oftentimes just uh, through the uh, jobs that they have, but uh, they're, they're having to piece together a number of means to be able to, to put food on the table. Unfortunately, it's over 40 million Americans uh, that, that that fall into the category of food insecure. Every county, oh my gosh. yeah, every county in the U.S. has reported a percentage of its population experiencing hunger. And I think one of the things that we often we often glance over uh, in our in our work, so many people are are great and they're professionals and the, and they're. They're working to solve the homeless crisis in the U.S. They're working to make sure that everybody has access to health care or they're making sure that people have livable age paying jobs and so forth. And so oftentimes we talk about different populations like we have, you know, 30 plus million Americans that don't have access to health care. And we have Mm. over 40 million Americans that are in poverty or we have, Mm. you know, X number of, uh, you know, a percentage of the U.S. that, that are sending their kids to schools with dropout rates. Uh, well above 50% in college readiness in the single digits. But the reality is 
it's the same family. It's mm. the same family on the local level that doesn't have health care, uh, who've had uh, jobs that haven't paid enough to make ends meet for generations. Uh, it's the same family that's sending their kid uh, to low performing schools that are uh, that are also experiencing hunger. And, uh, and, and that's a constant in the reality. One thing that we talk about often uh, in, in, the, in the food insecurity space is, is that families are forced to make trade-offs every month. They're, they're forced yeah. to decide, you know, do I pay for rent? Uh, do I pay the car payment? Do I pay for childcare or medical expenses? Or do I pay for food? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what they do is they, you know, if, if you don't pay your uh, rent, then you're going to get kicked out of your home. And if you don't pay your car payment, you're going to get your car repossessed. But if you don't buy food, it does create a number of mental health challenges. Uh, it yeah. creates uh, a number of other uh, security related issues. And certainly your kids aren't going to perform very well in school, but you get to keep your home. And so people make trade-offs to get by. So that's that's an unfortunate reality. It's, it's like we have the same population uh, I, I reference them as, as the scapegoats of, of American infrastructure and in that, uh, that they're bearing the weight of all of the burdens of our society, or at least mm-hmm. most of our systemic burdens, and many of them have for generations. And yeah. uh, we, we certainly want to see that tide turn. Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And that's, those, those numbers are staggering. I mean, hearing you mention that you know, over 40 uh, million folks are considered food insecure. And I know in the book, you talked about how, in fact, um, almost 13 million children are living in food insecure households. And just, it just, um, it's, 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 it's painful. I mean, it's really painful hearing these numbers. And um, so when we talk about food insecure, though, and how so can you talk a little bit how that's different from hunger and and just like what it what exactly it is that you mean when you say that someone is, you know, is living in a food insecure household? Like, what yeah. does that mean? Yeah. Well, so uh, the the term very low food secure is probably the closest correlation to what we would traditionally mean by hunger, that somebody is missing meals and they are literally going Hunger, uh, hungry. You know okay. that's a physiological issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, food security is really an economic measure, and uh, it, it's it's a measure to say, do you have enough money to be able to, to buy food for your family? And so, very low food security would be an extreme percentage of the population, a smaller percentage of that forty million Americans who are disrupting their eating patterns on a on a regular basis because they perpetually yeah. don't have enough money. Whereas a lot of families in the U.S. hunger hunger can be episodic. Uh, meaning that some months they, they may be able to piece together enough money to be able to provide meals for their family, but other months uh, they're unable to. And so uh, mm-hmm. so th- they would be a, a food insecure household in perpetuity, but there would be some specific months where they're actually encountering hunger. That obviously, to your point about 13 million children um, who are considered yeah. food insecure in the U.S., that spikes during the summer. Uh, yeah. Kids, oh, kids yeah. benefit from having school breakfast programs and school lunch programs. There's even a great after-school meal program uh, that they have access to. Many of them have access to throughout the school year. Uh, but when summer is out, uh, it's not like their parents get a raise. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, whatever wages right. you're making, uh, and many of them work in the school system. And so when summer's out, they're not getting paid at all. And so mm-hmm. uh, food insecurity really spikes among children. Uh, and adults during the summer because you just don't have enough money to be able to cover all the costs 
of food, particularly for kids that are on the free introduced lunch program. Something that people don't realize that in Texas alone, uh, we have over 60% of our public uh, school kids are on the free introduced lunch program. So that speaks mm. to the high poverty rate yeah. that we're seeing. And that's not unique to Texas. It's, uh, it's just a, a national reality uh, about how many kids in public schools are, are experiencing poverty and, and thus hunger. Yeah. Well, certainly you started um, talking about this a moment ago, but certainly we know, you know, that how in the various ways in which hunger can impact us physiologically, but I would love for you, especially, you know, since many of our listeners are mental health care providers, I'd love for you to touch on just how deeply complex um, hunger is and how it impacts so many other areas of our lives, um, including our mental health. Do you mind unpacking some of that complexity? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you two, two uh, stories that, that I encountered uh, when, when, as I was diving uh, more deeply into this space um, almost a decade ago. Okay. Uh, one was a study uh, that was done by some Baylor University faculty um, who were looking at the neurological effects of stability. And so what they found is that when kids who live in stressful households, and they define stressful households as kids who aren't always sleeping in the same place, um, particularly in that first two to three years of their life, Mm -hmm. um, or they're sleeping on different, you know, they might be sleeping on a couch one day and in a bed the next day and in a different apartment the next day. But when they have inconsistent access to places to sleep or inconsistent access to food, that it affected their brain's ability to think in patterns. So they couldn't fathom that two followed one every time or that B followed A every time. And so by the time they were getting wow. to kindergarten, uh, not only could they not learn to count or, or, or learn to, uh, you know, learn their alphabet, uh, then of course they, they couldn't learn to read. And, and unfortunately what we know is that, you know, by the time you're in third grade, if, uh, if you're not reading on the third grade level, your chances of graduating from high school have, have plummeted dramatically. So really these kids, uh, you know, many of their fates are sealed from birth. Well, that's, that's not healthy, and it has a direct correlation uh, with mental health decline. So when people don't have access to food on a consistent basis, uh, uh, depression um, spikes among those children. Um, and then, you know, just as uh, uh, if you don't have access to, to nutritious food in particular, uh, it, it begins to uh, affect your wanting to get up every day, and uh, it, it becomes your sole focus of, uh, of living. So that was one instance that I heard about. The second one was in my own family. Uh, my grandparents hmm. were, uh, my grandfather was a pastor in the small North Louisiana town where he and my grandmother lived. They were kind of the patriarch and matriarch of this little community. Uh, but as they got older, they had, they were experiencing dementia, but they were still living at home. And uh, this had gone on for quite a while. Uh, and they had a, a doctor's appointment. And when they met with their doctor, they found out that, uh, or, or we, all their family members, found out that they were regularly missing meals because uh, they, they were forgetting to eat. And the doctor realized that when they were remembering to eat, uh, they were getting in their car and driving to Sonic where they were getting a corn dog. And so not only, you know, our family was alarmed for three reasons. One, obviously, because... Uh, they were driving and then they shouldn't have been behind the wheel of a car. They were missing meals. And then also when they were eating, that they were eating food without high nutritional uh, value. So 
Mm. Fortunately for us, you know, because we have uh, relatives that live close by and their church, when they were alarmed when the, when, uh, when the church that my grandfather had retired from heard about this. And so they sprang into action. They created a Meals on Wheels program to make sure they had daily check-ins and, and, uh, and, and somebody bringing, uh, you know, a hot meal by uh, every day. So that we were, we were lucky. Uh, we were lucky that we have such yeah. a strong social network. But you can imagine all of these individuals, many of which are, participate in Meals on Wheels programs, but Meals on Wheels is unable to keep up with the demand. Just here in Waco, they've yeah. got a waiting list of 3,000 people. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And so, so, you know, you, th- those, those individuals are oftentimes experiencing, uh, extreme mental health, uh, problems, uh, living in isolation, um, and experiencing hunger and really have no av- avenue to advocate for themselves. And so without those daily check-ins and without those, uh, uh, volunteers and social workers bringing meals by on a, on a regular basis, you know, th- those folks are, are in pretty isolated situations. So th- those are a couple examples. Of course, there there are many more, but uh, uh, th- those are certainly a, a couple. Yeah, no, those are great. I mean, I, I love that, you know, how you just span the, um, the age spectrum from looking at, at young children and how this impacts kids and their learning abilities and, yeah, all the way up to like the story with your grandparents and how good it is that they did have folks nearby, but obviously, like that isn't always the case. But, um, but I would imagine too, just the stress of trying to think about when you're going to get your next meal or when your child is going to get their next meal. You know, adding that on top of you know the impact of hunger and and not getting those nutrients and just all of it. It, it is so complex and. Is so deeply woven into so many other areas of our lives, um, including our mental health. That's right. That's right. So, in terms of you know, just on that same kind of yeah, that same note, yeah. uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I was a part of a group with the Aspen Institute, and we did a, a report looking at the healthcare costs affiliated with food insecurity in the U.S. And one of the things we found, particularly among the senior senior adult population, is that senior adults, uh, if they have uh, low nutrient intake or they're experiencing food insecurity, that seniors were at uh, 53% higher risk of a heart attack, 52% higher risk of asthma, oh 40% higher risk of heart failure, and 60% higher risk of depression um, oh. compared to food secure senior adults. And that, and hospital, in that part of that study, we found that mm-hmm. hospital readmission, that, that the U.S. lost $160 billion. Oh my gosh! Uh, in that year, uh, directly related to uh, hospital readmissions due to a lack of, of access to food that, that could have been prevented if people just had, you know, access to food um, to live an active, healthy lifestyle. So, so it's a oh big issue. Gosh. It's a big issue. Obviously, it's interrelated with so many others, yeah. and I think that's part of the challenge uh, for those of us who think, how do we make a systemic difference? It's saying that we have to make a systemic difference. One by by recognizing that it's the same family that's dealing with a lot of these problems, and so we can't right. we can't isolate these issues too much. Um, yeah. Otherwise, we're not getting a full picture of what's going on. Um, now, having said that, sometimes when you you can begin to figure out um, how you can make some headway, I was uh, I was uh, when, when my wife and I had she had just graduated with her social work degree, and and uh, we were living in in inner city San Antonio where I was doing community development work and. We were sitting down with a, 
a, uh, a financial counselor that just was telling us, okay, here's how you're going to pay off all your bills that you've accrued from school and whatnot. And as we all know, they can be, yes. they can be many and, and many of yes. which 20 years later, I think we're still, uh-huh. we're still paying on. And uh, it's like, oh, great. We're going to pay it yep. off just in time to send our kids to college and uh, then start the process oh, over. But, uh, <laughs> but they said, they said to us, they said, well, let's look at all this, you know, let's look at all of the the different, you know, sources of debt that you've accrued. And it was a depressing conversation, but they said, I assume they would say, you know, you want to pay off the one that has, you know, the highest interest rate first or whatever. And, and that wasn't what they, that wasn't what this counselor said. The counselor said, they said, this is, this is the card where you have the lowest balance, or this is the, this is the, uh, the, the thing that you need to pay off first because it has the lowest balance. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. And they said, no, you need to know that you have the capacity to be able to pay this off. And once yeah. you pay this one off, then I want you to take on the next one that has the second highest balance. And then you you begin to believe yeah. that you can live a life without debt. And I yeah. that was one of those formational things that you never know how it's going to relate to issues that you're working on 20 years later, but I think right. I think, you know, in many respects, hunger is because it does cut cut across so many different spheres and spectrums, what we found is that uh, that hunger is kind of the low-hanging fruit of poverty-related issues because historically, uh, you've gotten bipartisan support uh, for anti-hunger legislation. Uh, uh, we joke in Texas, obviously, that you can get the Catholics and the Baptists to work together uh, <laughs> on the issue, which is a miracle uh-huh. in and of itself. We even, you know, even uh, even bigger challenge is getting the the Baylor Bears and the the Texas Aggies to work together but uh, we've even we've even done that so i yeah, think that's I think, so funny that's right so i think um uh i think what's what we've seen is that this is a good step um towards addressing the, these larger issues of uh that we see with uh equity and and poverty related issues is to say how can we wipe out hunger as a as a step towards addressing some of these societal issues that many of which have been around for thousands of years, if not yeah. all of history of humanity. But so uh, yeah. we've been pleased to see how we've been able to galvanize folks um, around this particular issue and while pointing to these other complex issues. Right. Yeah. No, I, I love that you're um, that you're talking just kind of about that, that first step um, idea, because that was actually one of the things I really wanted to highlight was, you know, you you talk early on about the importance of establishing trust and finding this common ground. And um, if it's OK with you, I actually wanted to read a little bit of of your book. Sure. A couple of Please do. Is that yeah. OK? Yeah, okay. go for it. So you so you write in here under the section on common ground saying, if it is true that we are all created in the image of God, then we likely have more in common with one another than we realize. You say, when we identify this commonality, it becomes much easier to join in collaborative efforts to strengthen impoverished households that not only improve lives, but also build trust. And when we care about people and issues of injustice more than about being right, we all can win. In doing so, we create change that is sustainable because it is built on the premise of love of neighbor and involves everyone's input. And then you continue on to say, unfortunately, at a time of unrest in our nation and around the world, a time when we need our leaders to come together for the common good, our society is more fragmented than it has been any time since the civil rights era, if not the civil war, which practically ensures that the, the, that the systemic problems of domestic hunger and poverty will persist. 
To be clear, while we spend our time politically bickering, our children and our elderly are quietly going without food. I, when I read that, just that, especially that last sentence, it just really struck a chord in recognizing how many ways in which um, we are spending time and energy doing things that, you know, we have folks who are really struggling and needing us to spend that time and energy focused on best ways to serve them. Um, and I know you talk about throughout this book, you know, you, you're, you're, beautifully transparent about your faith as being something that has really motivated you to want to serve these individuals. And you, you talk about, you talked about that a little bit earlier on, but, but I know if you wanted to kind of expand on that any further around, like, you know, just this dive into this work and, and how your faith has been connected to this whole uh, effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got a great reading voice and I'm, I'm, I'm all in, I'm thinking, man, I, I, I want to, I want to read more. And, oh. uh, and some, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if, when you've been involved in the writing process, you know, most, most of the time you're writing this like, you know, like a year ago. And so, so hearing it again yeah. is, uh, interesting, but I, you know, part, mm. part, part of where that came from, I'll, I'll tell you where, what motivated, um, that particular passage. And then I can jump into some of my, my faith experience, but, yeah. um, what, uh, Wow, I mean, we're tearing each other apart, and, and oftentimes I think what, what's what's lost is that um, while while we're busy, well, there, there are, there's a whole lot there. One, while we're busy arguing with each other, there's a kid going without food, right? Mm. Uh, and so we're so busy trying to prove that we're right and the other person is wrong um, that uh, that we forget about the imminent need uh, imminent needs that many. Uh, many people who live in our country and around the world are experiencing um, on a moment by moment basis. And so, yeah. unfortunately, you know, a part of the social justice community, I do think sometimes we love our prophetic opinions so much um, that uh, that we have developed biases of our own and we're unwilling to see what good can come from people who might not really normally affiliate themselves with a, with a social justice tradition. Mm. And so... Uh, and, and we're quick to demonize. And so one, uh, I, I use, uh, you know, a number of examples in the book, but one, one example I use in particular is, you know, imagine if you're sitting down with a, with a marriage, uh, counselor. And so you and your spouse are sitting there and, and the marriage counselor says, well, I know how to solve your problems. If you would just publicly shame your spouse more often, then that will get you on the same page and you'll have a successful marriage. I mean, obviously, yeah. if somebody, too, yeah. yeah, if somebody said that, you, they would probably lose their their license. Hopefully. I would hope, right, I hope right, so. right, <laughs> right. And so, I mean, I think, but but for whatever reason, that's how we think we're going to convince people <sighs> to join our cause. And so, you know, Dr. King said, "Hate can't drive out hate; only love can do that." But we have perpetually tried to use hate speech um, mm-hmm. as people who are. Uh, who consider themselves uh, people who are, are for justice? We can we use hate speech to demonize those who disagree with our perspectives, mm-hmm. and it just does not work to convince people to join the cause. And so, one example, yeah. uh, one example that I use uh, in the book is uh, I was doing some organizing work in San Antonio, and and at the time, and a uh, um, there was a move to. Uh, create a PGA golf course um, in San Antonio, and they were going to create it over the Edwards Aquifer, which is 
um, where all of the drinking water for San Antonio and much of South Texas is supplied. It was really mm. not a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it was in a very wealthy neighborhood. The wealthy members of the community wanted it. And so there was a huge opposition that was created. And that opposition got um, very, you know, pretty, pretty nasty and, and, mm. and started uh, raking politicians over the coals and, and so forth about uh, this particular uh, this particular golf course. Now their cause was just, and they were using tactics that were developed by the old uh, by the the original uh, kind of godfather of community organizing, uh, Saul Alinsky, where you organize a mass of people to try to redistribute power um, to people that don't have it. And uh, they they use that those tactics uh, in a textbook capacity. But what ended up happening is is the city decided. Uh, they passed on the legislation. They said, "No, we're not going to. We're not going to support a golf course being built over the Edwards Aquifer, um, largely because they felt publicly humiliated by this group." Well, you know, power is rarely dis- redistributed in the process, and it certainly wasn't in this particular case. So, uh, the city leaders that really wanted this golf course to happen, and, and uh, uh, they looked for opportunities to. Uh, um, to every time uh, the particular neighborhoods that were predominantly low-income neighborhoods that were advocating for the uh, for not having a golf course, every time they needed something to, that would supply for their basic needs, you know, these uh, community members, uh, these powerful leaders in the community, were making sure that they didn't get anything that they needed. You know, they mm-hmm. and so it had some real adverse effects. Additionally, they just bought themselves some time. They they got some new lawyers, drew up new plans, and ultimately they got their golf course. Um, but the same community tried a completely different tactic a few years later around the issue of homelessness. Instead of pitting the powerful against uh, those of the justice community, they got the powerful and the justice community, the corporate sector, the nonprofit sector, the city, the yeah. faith leaders, and everybody around a common table to say, how can we address this issue together? Um, oh, and the wow. city ended up putting in one of the most progressive uh, um um, homeless shelters and, and and rehabilitation centers of anywhere in the U.S. And so it shows wow. it shows that by working together, one, you're recognizing each other's creativeness, right? So you're slowing yeah. down and you're having to figure out how do I find common ground with somebody that I might vehemently disagree with. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself, I think, is 21st century nonviolent uh, social change work uh, because mm-hmm. you have to you have to honor the creators. Now, that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. I mean, you can certainly disagree with people and still honor who they are. But oftentimes yeah. what we see publicly is that our disagreements about policy uh, end up becoming about the person. And so we demonize the person. And as people who come from uh, really any faith perspective, but certainly Christian faith perspective, I think what we can say is that and when we do that, we commit an act of violence. Um, and so I think that it's, it's important for us to honor the other, um, so that the ends, the ends of our process towards justice are, are, we, we get there, um, in a way that is, is bringing about justice at every step along, along the way. And, and that's something that we're going to have to realize. Otherwise, I don't think we build any kind of a sustainable, you know, transformation for people that are in poverty or experiencing hunger or any other issue for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to find, we've got to, we've got to do the slow, hard work of finding commonality. Um, and I think that commonality comes from our faith perspective. So I don't know oh, if that makes beautiful. sense, but no, uh, that's, it totally, yeah. it totally does. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. 
Well, and I want to, I definitely, I, I do want to talk a little bit about THI and just kind of the work that y'all are doing with THI. But I think a nice transition between what you were just talking about and getting to THI is that in the book, you do talk about these various hunger-free community coalitions. I think this is kind of building off of what you were just describing and the ways that communities are able to work together. And you even have these little these little steps that you walk the reader through of how, I mean, certainly not to overly simplify addressing such a complex topic and an issue, but but just trying to figure out ways in which these communities can come together. Do you want to talk a little bit about this little toolkit that THI provides and these these five steps? Sure. Um, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. So most of my yeah. editors uh, in this process said, no, don't include that um, in the book. Don't include oh that. Gosh, and I no, said, I was like, no, you got, I, I, that's right. I said, yeah. you have to, I said, you have to, yeah. because because people, you know, most of the time when if, if you are moved and compelled to action, which I hope uh-huh. people uh, yes. walk away from from reading the book that they will be compelled to act. I, I want them to be steeped in understanding before they do that. But as they move, as they're compelled to act, I want them to be able to act in ways that we have learned make the most profound, profound access to food and justice in yeah. the community. And so so this hunger free community model uh uh, the, hunger, the concept of hunger-free communities was developed by uh, Ambassador Tony Hall. He was a he was a congressman for twenty years, and then the ambassador to the World Food Program in Rome, and uh, started the Alliance to End Hunger, which is a partner with Bread for the World. And uh, he's become a friend and a, and a mentor in many ways. and And he's the one that really kind of uh, started kicking this idea around uh, when he was still a member of Congress. But for for me, so so this is it. And so I, I, I use uh, I'm going to tell you an analogy and I'm going to tell you a story about one of these uh, one of these groups. So one of the houses. So proximity to the problem to me is core of how you address uh, any kind of social issue. If you don't have proximity to the problem, chances are good. Uh, you're not going to do a good job. Uh, just like if you're not involved in mental health practice, you're probably not going to do good mental health research. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's just kind of it's, it's part of it. So. Uh, so I, we were living my first inner city house that I was living uh, in, and where we had we had prostitutes that worked I'm out of our front highly, yard, and all. Yeah, yeah I'm it, really glad you're going into this story because this is one of my favorite chapters of the book. Okay, by good. The way. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Well, well, I, I'll <laughs> tell you. I can tell you a couple of stories for that chapter. One in particular that was was a hilarious experience for us was we had a plumbing problem, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm telling you. Every time we ran the kitchen sink or turned on the shower or flushed a toilet, we could just hear that plumbing problem splashing below the boards of our house and uh, oh knew that gosh. something was was, oh was going God. awry. And <laughs> and, uh, and that problem began to seep out in our yard. And uh, and so, fine, you know, we called our landlord a bunch and, and we, we lived in one of those houses that was basically, you know, owned by a slumlord, I, I guess, for all practical mm-hmm. purposes. And. And we called them over and over again. They wouldn't send anybody out or return our phone calls. And then finally, a police officer stopped and said, listen, I'm going to ticket you and I'm going to threaten to have this house ta- torn down if y'all don't fix this problem because people are going to get sick from this. And so we called our wow. landlord, told him that, and that that compelled the landlord to act. So our landlord sent a plumber over to the oh house. My gosh. And he was a he was a full-size man trying to squeeze down a hobbit-sized hole in our mm-hmm. floors. And uh, he he and a, an apprentice went down, 
And as soon as they got down underneath the house, I mean, you could just hear them gagging and they were mad and they were yelling and cussing at each other. And we were upstairs just cracking up. I mean, it was hilarious. Oh. Listening to them bicker with each other and, and this, was, this was like you and a few um, students. Uh, students yep. and, yeah, seminary right. students were true it. That's right. That's right. That's right. We all we all shared a house uh, before we all got married. But they they uh, uh, so so then they they reemerge from underneath the house and they they're mad. I mean, they they are upset with with how much work is going to need to be done underneath the house and so they call the landlord and they're just yelling at the landlord and they yell like we can hear the landlord over the phone yelling back at them and finally they they leave and they get in their car and they slam their doors and they drive off and we think okay great you know they're going uh to get some some pipes and they're going to come back over here and they're going to they're going to fix the pipes on our house well mm-hmm. 30 minutes later maybe an hour later they show back up and they get out of their van and they pull out a bunch of concrete steps like oh what my in the gosh. world? So they oh lay they lay these concrete steps in our in our yard oh. so that we don't have to walk through the mess. Oh my gosh! And that Jeremy. and then they get in their van and they slam their doors and they drive off. And you're standing there like what? Yes, yes. We're just <laughs> we're just stupefied. Oh. Like that was their solution. Oh my and gosh! And I I use this you know what became an analogy is that, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes we, you know, when we look at issues that are just huge, um, I mean, obviously we, you know, the mental health population, the the whole, all of what we do with mental health, not only do we have uh, in many respects, the general population doesn't have a good handle on it and uh, that we all experience mental health issues and, and uh, and there's really no, there are no resources to adequately, uh, uh, resource folks for mental health. So, so when you think about that, it's like, it's too big, right? It's too big for us yeah. to, con- to, to address. Or you think about 40 million Americans experiencing hunger, 40 million Americans experiencing uh, poverty. You think about all this healthcare mess that we're in and, and no, yeah. no, you know, uh, uh, you can't, can't get people to, to sign on to common legislation on it. These issues get so big that what we end up doing is we put down concrete steps. We don't go mm. underneath the house to try to fix the pipes of justice. We instead, we just throw down these concrete steps of charity uh, so that we can feel good that we did something um, and we can move on. And uh, but we but we're not fundamentally changing or transforming uh, the situation, the injustices that these this 40 million American scapegoats are living in. And so what ends up happening is their children also live in it, too. And so ultimately, you got to go underneath the house and get dirty. Now, we. Uh, we, the police officer came back by and again, I think he was more upset about it, um, when he saw this and, and, uh, we all were like, you know, I mean, if this is their only solution, you know, these concrete steps are going to erode after Mm -hmm. uh, probably after six months and they're going to ultimately spend more money in concrete steps than they would have just by fixing the plumbing underneath the house, Mm -hmm. um, or the, or the, or the city's going to tear down the house and they can't charge us rent. And, uh, so we called the landlord and we, I mean, and, and we let him have it. And, uh, finally he sent somebody down and, and, and they, they plumber back over and they did fix the pipes of the house. And, and so I think for us, when we're thinking about what does systemic change look like? Mm-hmm. Well, on these issues, on these, on these, you know, macro social issues like food insecurity and poverty and such, it requires an all hands on deck. And mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't preached in a church or spoken at a government uh, or testified before a, con- a congressional committee that didn't say, well, this should be the government's job or this should be 
this should be the uh, the faith community's job, or this should be the nonprofit sector's job. Everybody wants to abdicate responsibility to a different sector, but the reality is is that it takes us all working together seamlessly uh, if we're going to address yeah. these issues in a comprehensive fa- capacity. And so, these hunger-free community coalitions really are that avenue. And and uh, one example I use in the book are of these two women, and it, it just shows that powerful social change can happen uh, with unlikely actors. It's not always your your people with all kinds of degrees and written books on, mm-hmm. on organizing right. and whatnot. Yep. These are two women who are Sunday school teachers at a church in a small West Texas community. And when they heard about THI, they wanted to become, they wanted their city to become one of our pilot communities. And they called me mm-hmm. and I told them that we were full. I said, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. we've chosen our pilot communities. Uh, so call me again next year and maybe we'll open yeah. up some spots for a few others. Well, these two women, uh, yeah. if you've ever met anybody yeah. from West Texas, they don't take no for an answer. And, and these two women, <laughs> these two women were not going to take no. They said, Jeremy, we had three manufacturing plants close yeah. and 10,000 kids are on the free introduced lunch program in our community. And as a result, uh, you know, they're, they're experiencing hunger. We have no summer meal program. We need to be a yeah. pilot community. So I gave them this kind of an ad hoc community assessment to do and expected that it would be too much work and I wouldn't hear back from them. And, uh, and within a few weeks, it's a, it's a tool that typically takes communities about six months to go through. And within uh-huh. a few weeks, uh, these women call me back and, uh-huh. and they, uh, they told, they said, look, we've gone through the assessment. Um, our congressman's on board, our mayor's on board, our city council, superintendent, school board, uh, our ministers, uh, our, our nonprofit community, everybody's on board. Oh now goodness. can we be a pilot community? Man. And it was just, I just laughed and I said, well, I think you already are. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and so they oh did. They, 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 they galvanized all these sectors to address summer hunger. And in a few months of planning, they, um, churches who had, had commercial kitchens said, we'll make meals. And nonprofits and churches and community centers that were in low-income neighborhoods said, we'll be summer meal sites. And the business community said, we'll deliver the meals and, and, wow. uh, and, and volunteer at the summer meal sites to do activities with the kids. And, and, uh, and then just a few months worth the planning, they did 20,000 meals uh, for kids that, that next oh, summer. My- Goodness. So it shows you, wow. and we've, we've seen that model work. We've got about 25 of these coalitions around the state of Texas. And, and uh, you know, just on, on issues like these childhood hunger issues, which is only one small part of what they do, every year we serve an additional 100 million more meals uh, oh to Texas kids over and above what we do the previous year just because of these, uh, the active work of these coalitions. So it really kind of points wow. to... Uh, you, you really do uh, see the multiplier effect when communities are willing to work together across political and ideological lines. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's just, it's so encouraging to hear about the good work that y'all are doing and how these coalitions are working together and, you know, and, and how these women, you know, in, in this one community, for example, how they stepped up, but, um, but how really it just takes a couple of us or maybe, maybe even if just one of them had reached out to you, um, with just that, you know, that deep passion, like we, we need to address this. We need to do something about this. Um, and the ability to bring this community get together is just remarkable. Yeah. So, it, it, we, we, the, it, their, the, their tenacity was, uh, was impressive, but, but the, again, you're right. I mean, it's, um, that just shows how accessible, 
um, these programs can be. Now we have other cities and you've got top-notch professionals and, and, and people that do this kind of stuff, uh, build collective impact models that are sophisticated with, uh, you know, sophisticated research and evaluation methods that, that, that accompany it. And they're doing some transformative work, but it doesn't always have to be the most well-funded projects to be able to do yeah. the most transformative work. And I think that's what we saw ah, in West beautiful. Texas. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I definitely want to point our um, listeners, you know, when you, uh, hopefully y'all will pick up this book, but he, but Jeremy does walk through these various steps. Um, you know, if this is something that you or within your community are interested in, in doing and figuring them out, like how to go about um, building this hunger-free community coalition, I definitely would uh, recommend learning a little bit more about it within the book. Um, Jeremy, do you want to um, quickly tell us just a little briefly about how THI came to be? Because I know you are the founder um, and the director of it. Do you want to tell us just briefly about how how THI even came to be in the first place and, and maybe some of the like one or two main things that y'all are working on right now? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So, uh, so THI um, uh, uh, came to be when a woman named Susie Painter, um, who at the time was working with the Christian Life Commission, uh, an ethics arm of the Baptist Convention in Texas, uh, called me when I was in San Antonio doing inner city community development work to see if I would be interested in taking on uh, a project to address hunger, but kind of looking at how we do it on a local, federal, or local, state, and federal level at the same time. And uh, I wasn't initially, I, I didn't think it was a good fit for me. And so I said, uh, you know, but I'm happy to talk to you about what I think could work. And uh, little did I know that you don't say no to Susie. And uh, and, uh-huh. and she is incredibly <laughs> convincing. And, uh, and she convinced me of why this was the way to go and uh, why though I had broadly worked on the issues of, uh, of poverty beforehand and, and social enterprise and such, why hunger was a way that you could build common ground um, to address um, to address this issue all over the U.S. and you could get all these different folks together around a table that normally wouldn't come around a table to address the larger issue of poverty. And uh, But by getting them there, uh, you're pointing to some of these larger issues. And so that's how it yeah. came to be. John Garland, I mean, not John Garland, I'm sorry, uh, Diana Garland and John Singletary, uh-huh. uh, yeah. who uh, were in the School of Social Work, uh, um, had been talking yeah. to me about a different project. And I said, what, what do you think if we partner together on this one? And they jumped at the chance. And so uh, the Texas mm-hmm. Hunger Initiative was initially born in the School of Social Work 10 years yeah. ago uh, at, wow. at Baylor and, and has since grown and, and done all kinds of things that I never dreamed of. Um, and so we're, we're uh, privileged to be a part of, of Baylor. Something that I'll, I'll tell your audience that we'll be announcing in a month is that now we work in about uh, in more than we've worked in more than 25 states. Wow. We'll be launching some. That's awesome. That's right. That's right. And we've in uh, and, and, and num- a number of, of countries, predominantly in Central America. And so we mm. uh, will be launching on October 1st, the new Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. Um, wow. To encompass all of the work, the Texas Hunger Initiative will continue to be what we call our work here in Texas, uh, which is really kind of our learning lab for how to address social issues. So we're thrilled That's about so that. Awesome. And yeah, yeah. So it's a uh, it's it's been a neat, neat 10 year period. Uh, certainly more has happened in this 10 year period than I, I ever thought possible. Yeah, no, that's so cool. Well, and I love just hearing you, you know, mention about how 
Diana and John were kind of helping with that initially. And, and we've actually had John on this podcast before. So well, I'm, I'm very um, sorry to your listeners. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's awesome. No, he's come on to talk about the Enneagram. There were a couple of episodes last year that, that he did that. So, um, but <laughs> that's great. Well, he's been diagnosing me with, uh, um, all kinds of Enneagram illnesses for, for many years now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yep. Yeah, that's I love great. it. That's, that's so good. Well, um, y'all are doing just such good work. And I, I just am so grateful for every bit of what y'all are doing. And um, for our listeners, Jeremy and I, we actually, our offices are like, I don't know, like 20 feet walking distance from one another and uh, maybe a little bit more than that. But, you know, but it's just been such a treat having y'all you know, so close by and just learning about the good work that y'all are doing. So, well, thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah. So, um, one thing that I like to ask those who come on the show, who specifically are talking about a book that they're launching, um, what would you say that your hope for this book would be like you, you know, this is a, a big labor of love that you've poured into this book and I know you're about to go on tour to promote it. Um, but what is, what's your hope for this book? Well, uh, a, a couple of things. Mainly, I, I want readers. I, I did a, uh, I participated in a race equity training this past year, and and the the woman who was facilitating the training said the temptation is is when you hear this two days worth of information, is that you're going to want to rush to solutions. And she said, I don't want you to rush to solutions. I want you to rush to understanding. And I thought that was profound in so many ways. And, mm, and uh, really, cool. really, it really was. And, 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 yeah. and the training was amazing and done by uh, the Race Equity Institute out of uh, mm. North Carolina. But they, but I think for me, that's what I ultimately, though I definitely want people to be moved to action because this is a crisis that, that Americans are dealing with on a daily basis. And if you don't yeah. know, think that hunger is a crisis, uh, skip lunch every day this week and just see how you're mm-hmm. feeling by four o'clock. And then imagine 40 million Americans dealing with this on a regular basis and trying to go to work and go to school and dealing uh, with all the things in their life. And then you'll you'll get to understand very quickly um, how this is a crisis for so many people. But I, you know, I think, you know, my dream for this book is that people would have a better understanding of why people experience hunger and poverty in the U.S. Obviously, we love to pretend that people are poor in the U.S. because they're lazy. Um, and, and after living in, in poor neighborhoods for two decades and, and working on this issue, I can affirm that there are occasionally people that don't take personal responsibility for themselves. But by and large, that is, uh, that is, that is an unusual circumstance. And that most of the time, people are, are underemployed and, and experiencing a whole, uh, a whole myriad of issues um, um, where the deck is really stacked against them. So I, I want people to walk away with a better understanding of that. And then mm-hmm. it, the, the book is titled for Matthew 25, you know, so I do come yeah. from a Christian faith perspective. Yeah. And, you know, in, in that passage, so Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. And and he separates the sheep and the goats. And the goats are the ones that didn't feed the hungry. Um, and the sheep mm-hmm. are the ones that inherit eternal life because they did. And oftentimes mm-hmm. as Christians, we treat these issues um, like their extra credit, but that was what constituted the decisive criterion for judgment in Matthew mm-hmm. 25. And so I want people to know this is an imperative call for all people of faith. And uh, in, yeah. in, in, in addition to that, um, that, to have a better understanding of why people experience it, and then some tools to be able to address it while honoring all of our collective creativeness. So if that happens, oh, so that good. would be a dream yeah. scenario. 
Um, and uh, I've joked that if more than my mother buys it, then uh, then I'll consider it a win. <laughs> uh, awesome. And uh, so so anyway, so that that's those are my hopes. Oh, that's so good. Well, I'm going to end on uh, one last little bit from the book that I, I would like to read. And then, uh, yeah, I'll just read this really quick. So tying in with you were just referencing Matthew 25. You mentioned this towards the end of the book. But just before where you unpack a little bit about Matthew 25, you write, um, Likewise, in our time, we must end the idea that hunger and poverty are acceptable socioeconomic conditions. I fundamentally believe we do not see the poor as our equals, as created in the image of God, just as we are. If we did, how could we justify their going without food, clothing, and shelter? If we saw the poor as human, how could we justify the treatment of the immigrant mother separated from her child at the border? How could we justify wage rates that don't allow someone to buy their own food or medication or to provide for their families, just as we hope to provide for our families? We must admit to ourselves that we do not see the homeless man on the corner as being created in the image of the same God who created us. If we think the poor are created in God's image, then how can we justify poverty? How can we justify children going without food? Um, And then you unpack a little bit in Matthew 25, but this little last bit of the book is just so beautiful. Um, And it just does invite this beautiful call for the reader to toward action. And I I love that. So uh, for our listeners, I will mention that we will um, be doing a giveaway with this book. We'll have some information on Twitter and Instagram for that. So stay tuned. If you would like to connect with Jeremy Everett, you can find him on Facebook. You could also uh, find um, THI or the Texas Hunger Initiative on Facebook and Instagram. You can also learn more about Texas Hunger Initiative at texashunger.org or um, go ahead and learn a bit more about Jeremy's book at iwashungrybook.com. We'll include all of these links in the show notes, of course. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. If you'd like to connect with Robert, uh, you can find him at robert-4.com or on any social media at robertbohr.com. Um, and if you'd like to connect with CXMH, you can find us on any social media at CXMH Podcast. Jeremy, thank you again so much for joining me today. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, well, I'm grateful that you uh, invited me to be on the show and, uh, and grateful for the work that you all are doing, galvanizing folks across um, their tr- traditional sectoral lines to looking at the scope mm-hmm. of, of mental health and uh and thanks for, for pointing out that these two issues really are interrelated. And anything that we can do to, um, to come alongside families to, to ensure that they have access to three healthy meals a day and to ensure that they have access to health care and so many other things that, um, that, that we will be blessed by, by God uh, in, according, uh, in according to Matthew 25. So, uh, so mm-hmm. grateful um, for this and, and, and grateful for the opportunity to share with your listeners. Oh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Jeremy. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. 
If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.